The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, January the 24th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Jack Horgan-Jones from our political staff is here. Hiya, Jack. Hiya, Hugh. I'm also delighted to say that we're joined by Minister for Children, Equality, Disability, Integration and Youth, Radhika Gorman. You're very welcome, Minister. Good morning, Hugh. Good morning, Jack. Thanks for having me on. That's a very big mouthful for one job, for one portfolio. I've noticed over the last uh, while, probably not surprisingly, that some people have suggested that it's too big of a job for, for one person. What do you say to that? Well, it's, it's a busy department, um, but lots of my other cabinet colleagues have uh, have busy departments as well. Uh, I suppose we're in the news at the moment uh, in terms of, uh, of 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 response to the the, the Ukraine war and, and international protection pressures, and obviously in terms of the referendum, the refer- upcoming referendums as well. So look, there's there's a lot happening in the department. It's uh, it's fascinating work within the department. It's. Uh, all of the issues from uh, you know child protection to um, to responding to the the needs of uh, of, of Ukrainians through uh, to youth services they're all stuff that I'm really passionate about so uh, I I wouldn't be in another department to be honest uh, well is it too much of a load I mean obviously um, some of the things that have happened since uh, since you were appointed could not have been predicted in particular the Ukrainian situation but also perhaps the spike in international protection applications too does that mean that you know it, it, it's difficult to keep all the other elements of your of your portfolio under control or well, we definitely have to focus on um on on crisis responses to uh, to the war in Ukraine uh, and I was very frank at the time uh, in in early 22 and for much of 22 we did have to shift resources within the department and by resources I mean people mm. our civil servants had to move from what they were doing to focusing on uh, the, the immediate crisis response. The and does that mean that need. other things then, then didn't get done? It, it, it meant there were delays yeah definitely there were delays to to, to policy work in, 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 in other areas but we've caught up on most of that at this stage uh, and we also were able to give what I think was uh, an extremely um, you know effective and broad response to the needs of of Ukrainians here in the country uh, and I think that's recognised by them it's recognised by the Ukrainian government wasn't perfect absolutely not but uh, by and large uh, we, we provided a very good response to uh, a wartime situation a situation uh, when I was making my plans for 2022 in January of that year uh, wasn't re- on any of our radars And Jack where are we now because the Ukrainian situation is in flux to some degree isn't it there's going to be a, there's a change of policy upcoming So yes we're kind of between two two states where we're ending one form of provision or one set of entitlements and bringing in a, a curtailed version which uh, the legislation is in front of the, the committee mm-hmm. today which will limit accommodation providing to uh, to, to 90 days and cut the, the rate of welfare payment as well. Uh, that's something that I believe you, you advocated quite strongly for as necessary and ultimately inevitable uh, across last autumn and, and into the winter. Did you ever feel conflicted about that? Did you ever feel that you know this is going to actually make life more difficult for people who are forced to, to come here? Well, I suppose coming from from my politics, um, reducing support's not something maybe that that I'd naturally consider. Um, but we had to look at Ireland's response in the context of the EU wide response, um, and many EU member states had. Uh, in the course of, uh, I suppose, early 2023, made changes to the the, the level of supports they were they were uh, they were providing. Whether it was shortening time periods in accommodation, whether it was reducing levels of of social protection supports, uh, and I think it was always important that Ireland. Our response to Ukraine had to be in step with what other member states were doing. And for a period within 2023, I think we were somewhat out of step. uh, And it was important to bring us back in line with the approach taken by other member states. Does it crystallise to some extent some difficult choices that may be coming down the line? So, for example, if a Ukrainian family is in emergency accommodation for 90 days... Uh, and will you evict them effectively into homelessness? Is that something that could happen? Well, what we've said is it is a clear, the, under the new model that we're introducing, we've said it is a clear 90-day 90 um, 90 um, period within the system. 
But I, I think you have to recognise the changes that have already happened since we've started to have this discussion on altering our offering. The numbers of Ukrainians arriving in Ireland has dropped very significantly over the last number of weeks. We were looking at, um, in, in, in October of last year, we were looking around 600, 700 a week. We had a, a very significant number then. Uh, in January so far, it's been about 150 per week. So we've seen a very significant decrease. And that's before we've brought in the actual legislative changes. And it's before we've really started to communicate to Ukrainians uh, in Ukraine, in other member states thinking of coming to Ireland, here's the changes, here is what, here's the supports that will be provided, this is the time limit uh, and, 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 and this is what will happen. So where changes have been brought in, in other member states, Ukrainians have responded to those changes um, and we haven't seen instances of, of homelessness, of, of, of people being left destitute because in the first place, uh, most Ukrainians have some resources already. They make decisions in terms of, of where they go within the European Union and they have the right to travel to other member states. And I think that's a key distinction between the positions that Ukrainians so you're, are in you're and, and, and international arguing on the balance of probabilities, it won't emerge certainly at scale, but you can't rule out that it will emerge. So just to return to the, the the core point, if someone hits their 90 days and they have nowhere to go, what will you do with them? We will have put in place supports in terms of advising people how to, uh, how to if, they're, if they wish to look into the private sector uh, in terms of, uh, of, of private accommodation. But w- we will have advised them the, the, the real pressures that exist there at the moment. We'll have linked them in in terms of NGOs with the, uh, the um, vacant home scheme and, and the pledged accommodation scheme. But ultimately, the accommodation offering is for 90 days and people will be asked to leave so accommodation the door will be after closed. that time. It, it will have to be or otherwise it's not a workable system. From what you're saying there, I mean, people talk about push and pull and sometimes it's an oversimplistic way of, of addressing migration issues, but it, it is a real thing. And for what you're saying there, there was a pull factor happening in because of the, the, the benefits were, which were available to well, people fleeing war in Ukraine in Ireland as opposed to other EU countries and you're addressing that. I suppose the, the question is, were you too slow in addressing that. Well, we looked at um, the uh, amount of secondary movement that was taking place. So mm-hmm. this is Ukrainians who had sought temporary protection in one member state and subsequently sought it in Ireland. And we did see throughout 2023 some increases in the level of secondary movement. And that was, uh, I, I think, a significant element in terms of, uh, of, of uh, our, our, our change response. Um, I think you know, we recognise the scale of what's happened to the Ukrainian people. Um, you know, a war brought, uh, brought brought on them out of no fault of their own. And I think there was a strong sense across government and across Irish society that we wanted to help, that we wanted to put in place a clear mechanism. Um, and as EU member states, and particularly those maybe closest to the border with Ukraine, they made made changes initially, then those changes spread across Europe, and Ireland has made those changes now. Look, people can make a judgment, should it have come in a couple of months earlier or not, uh, but ultimately the changes have been made now. We were always able to provide accommodation for Ukrainians arriving here, um, but we have to move to this change and model And what's the longer point. term view now? Because really, uh, most analysts describe the situation currently in Ukraine as a stalemate, so mm. it seems very possible, if not likely, that this conflict is going to drag on much longer. The temporary protection which is available is due to... to March 25. Yes, so what can, happens? Can that, what, what happens? Yeah. that be extended again? My, my understanding, and I haven't read the directive for a while, but my understanding is it can't be extended within the directive. There would actually have to be an amendment to the directive itself, which would obviously go, require going through a legislative process. Now, that's my understanding of it anyway. Within the directive, you could add on an extra three years, but not uh, not any further than that. So, just, so I just, think just, just, there just is just a fundamental question that the EU has to answer, and it's not just for Ireland, it's for all 27 member states coming into 2024, um, because recognising what you said, Hugh, there about the position that the, the war is in at the moment, um, what is the EU's... Um, position on the millions of Ukrainians living in member states, what is it going to be at March 2025? And I think that decision needs to be taken early this year uh, in order for, for, for certainty to be provided to everyone. And what should happen then? What's your view? I mean, should there be... that Sinn Féin, for example, have kind of suggested that only highly skilled Ukrainians should be permitted to stay afterwards. Do you think there should be a pathway to permanency set up 
uh, for those Ukrainians who are here? Do you think that perhaps incentivized returns should be something, depending on the situation that uh, that is in place in Ukraine at the time? But basically, what's the toolkit for when temporary protection is no longer in place in the way that it is now available? Well, speaking personally, first of all, I think we need to support Ukrainians to return to their country because uh, undoubtedly uh, Ukraine has suffered a brain drain over the course of these two years in terms of many people of, of, of huge ability have left uh, the country along with their families. It suffered a, a drain of, of its women and, it, and its, its young people as well. So I think Ireland and other member states should be supporting people to return. Um, sorry, I reckon- sorry to jump in, but would, would that include, do you think, as part of the potential response, an incentivized return where you pay for someone to take or pay them some money to leave effectively? I think the most valuable support that Ireland and other member states can provide is is proper infrastructural support to rebuild Ukraine. Like the cost of a ticket is one thing, but to go home to a village that is destroyed, that the school is gone, that the, the, the water isn't working anymore is actually a much bigger deal. And I think Ireland and the EU is going to have to support Ukraine in terms of a, a major reconstruction programme. Uh, in terms of, I suppose, supporting individual people's choices, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely open to making it as easy as possible for people to return. But I think the biggest determining factor in people making that decision to go back won't be, do I have the cost of uh, a Ryanair ticket? It'll it be, will be what? Is it there. safe? Yes. You're right there, Hugh. That'll be the first question. A, is it safe? But B, can we rebuild a life for ourselves in Ukraine? Or do we have at least the prospect of, because I think everyone going back will accept it's going to be tough now, but is there a future? Is the EU going to come in in support uh, of the rebuild in the same and, way and, they support the And what about practicalities looking at it from sort of the other end of the telescope, which is that, you know, that, uh, the response of the country was very strong to the to the need of these of, of these refugees. And we pressed a lot of service, a, a lot of facilities into service of that. But, you know, if families are looking at living in hotels scattered around the country, not for six months or one year, but two years or three years or four years, that becomes an unsustainable way of living for them. And it also places pressure on those facilities around the country, doesn't it? So it's, it's, it's not a long-term solution. In other words, no, it's not, um, and I suppose that is a consequence of the wider housing um, shortage that we see in this country. Um, and we were always very clear from day one that uh, the accommodation for uh, uh, Ukrainians fleeing here had to be delivered separately to the work that Minister O'Brien is leading in terms of housing for all, in terms of providing more social and affordable housing. Um, and I think that was the right call to make, but it does as you say, mean we've had to use facilities which on a, a, a short-term basis are, are um, um, you know, hugely beneficial for Ukrainians, but on a long-term basis, you know, a, a hotel is not the ideal location to, to, to raise a family. Um, that's why we are working to uh, provide more, I suppose, medium-term accommodation in terms of refurbished, uh, in, in terms of refurbished units. Um, it's why we continue to to undertake the um, the vacant homes and the pledged home scheme that was uh, originally run through the Red Cross. We have sixteen thousand people living in either vacant homes or shared homes across the country uh, through those schemes. Like that's uh, of, of the of the seventy-three thousand people. So uh, what's that? About about twenty percent are living through that scheme. That's that's a really important important support to the the, the states and uh, the, the, the states um, provision of accommodation so we have looked at the various mechanisms to provide uh, means of accommodation outside hotel and guest house accommodation let's move to to international protection which is what's really been in the news at the forefront of the news over the last the last couple of months or so uh, in the doll yesterday the Taoiseach said that more than 1,000 people had arrived since the start of the year and about 600 of those uh, have not been provided with accommodation, presumably. Those are male applicants. Is this the new normal that we're going to see and how are we going to cope with that? It, it's not a new normal that I or my department want to see. Um, we have a, a legal obligation to provide accommodation for anybody seeking international protection in the country. Uh, and uh, as you say, since since December of, of last year, we haven't been able to fulfil that in relation to uh, to male applicants We've made changes to the allowance in terms of providing them with some additional financial support while they're not being accommodated. But I, I've I've always been very clear: this isn't a system that uh, this isn't a situation that I want to uh, see uh, see see persist. Um, uh, but we are under pressure right now. 
um, and we the, the the numbers arriving continue to be significant, around 350 people seeking international protection each week. Um, since uh, since late last year, since since December of last year, we've seen a change in the makeup of those arriving. We're seeing more families arriving seeking international protection. Uh, do you think that's in response at all? To, do you think the word has gone out that there isn't accommodation available for people arriving as single males? I think the the overall numbers. Um, the overall numbers of people seeking inter seeking international protection migrating across Europe are are increasing, um, and Ireland is now, I suppose, receiving its the EU average of arrivals, um, and it, it's because the jump has been so big over the last two years. It's a it's it's a lot. It's too much for the system, the current system, to face. But we are just now receiving the EU average, whereas previously, I suppose, by being you know an island nation at the edge of Europe, we were maybe shielded from the levels of migration that. Um, Many mainland, you know, southern. So uh, we can expect that to continue country. indefinitely. Like we saw um, fifteen thousand people seek international protection in twenty twenty two. We saw thirteen thousand people seek international protection twenty twenty three. I think those are the numbers we're going to see uh, going forward, rather than the three thousand, three and a half thousand we were seeing in 2017, 2018. So when we see the very unpleasant, some of them news stories from various towns, you know them well around the around the country over the last and from Dublin as well over the um over the last couple of months, how much of that is due to the fact that there's a sort of firefighting process going on? So that there's that that causes tensions in these communities, which yeah, you'll hear perfectly reasonable people say express you know negative sentiments on the basis that nobody told told them that a local hotel was going to be was going to be designated in this way for asylum seekers. And I'll come to communities in a moment, but if just take a step back, the system of international protection, both the system of processing someone's applications and the system of accommodating people. It wasn't fit for purpose back in 2017 and 2018 when there was three and a half thousand people arriving every year. It's certainly not fit for pro purpose in a system where we have 14, 15,000 people arriving every year. So that's the work we're seeking to address at the moment between myself and Minister McEntee. I'm looking to put in place a system that allows us to plan where people will be accommodated allows us a system that's focused on state-owned accommodation, um, where we can plan where people are accommodated, where we can put in place relevant uh, relevant supports, where we've better control of the, the, the conditions that people are being accommodated in, um, and that there's better value for money in terms of it's not money going to the private sector. Minister McEntee is working on the processing side of it to ensure that there are more staff in the International Protection Office so people's applications can be dealt with much more quickly. And and they can get that decision. Yes, you have international protection or no, you don't, in which case you'll have to leave the country. How, lo how long until that's set up? Because, I mean, we are we are still we remain in an emergency response to these increased numbers. When do you see the state arriving at a, a kind of steady state in terms of its IP accommodation provision? Well, on the processing side, Minister McEntee has done a lot of work in terms of the first step, the first uh, in the International Protection Office. The number of staff has doubled there. They're now getting through about a thousand applications uh, every week. That is going to have to be retreated in, in the second stage, the International, uh, the, the, the Refugee Appeals Tribunal. But a significant amount of work is happening on the processing side. Um, it's going to take some time before we have, I How think, a, a requisite. It'll take a number of years okay. before we have a requisite amount of state-owned accommodation that we're at that steady state. So that in, you in the interim, do you see yourself relying, perhaps to a lesser degree, but nonetheless relying to a large degree on private sector accommodation, perhaps uh, in communities up and down the country, hotels? There, there, there is going to be an ongoing reliance on uh, private sector uh, accommodation as we move to this uh, more steady state system where so will, there's more state-owned accommodation. Communities earlier, Catherine Day wrote to you last week saying that you have to do so at a stage, at a concept stage, when uh, when a venue is being considered, as opposed to a day in some instances before people are planned to arrive. Will you commit to doing that and talking to communities earlier, or is the fear that you'll just invite more protests earlier and make it harder to accommodate people? We absolutely have to provide people with the information, both in terms of whether we're uh, opening uh, emergency accommodation as we've had to open a lot of over the last number of, uh, of months, or indeed when we're uh, looking to plan and open new state-owned accommodation. Um, we've done a lot of communication and 
the focus is on uh, those situations where we've opened accommodation and there have been problems. There has been a lot of accommodation opened over the last number of months where there hasn't been problems because our community engagement team have provided the relevant information to the TDs, the senators, the councillors, have engaged with community groups who've raised issues and have been able to address that. So why did that not happen in some places? Um, it did happen in some places and people... It didn't um, happen in Ross Grey. They got one day notice. In Ross Grey, we had to move very quickly in terms of the level of um, of uh, families that had arrived over the previous two weeks and we had a very significant need to provide accommodation. Was there a risk of women and children being turned away and not accommodated at that stage? There was. Is there still an overriding risk that that could happen at any stage? Our um, provision of accommodation is tight at all times. So I have to bear in mind uh, when we are opening a new accommodation, A, that really important element in terms of engaging with the community, but also that wider obligation that we don't want to leave people, particularly uh, families, particularly female applicants, unaccommodated. What's, what's a community hotel? Um, a community hotel is a, a, a concept that we're looking at in, in the context of Ross Grey. I know there's been a similar one brought forward Schliefbjerg in um, in Monaghan, uh, where a, a, a hotel is run by um, a, a, a community organisation, uh, and any profits from it are reinvested into the hotel, into the local community. Does the does the acceptance, or I think it was a an approval in principle or an agreement to support it in principle, does that indicate that you guys are in deal-making mode when it comes to buying off communities up and down the country? I or, think the, or that you have to change your plans in response to protests. So I think there was a, a centre in Cork, which isn't going ahead. I think that's reported this morning. There was uh, the issue both in Carlo and in Mayo, where you were going to accommodate single men and you changed to families. You'll say it's not a U-turn, but if it's not a U-turn, it's certainly approaching 180 degrees. So, like, are you having to change, are you having to strike deals now uh, in order to get people accommodated? And are you willing to strike deals going forward? In terms of Ballinrobe, in terms of Carlo, those were operational decisions. We had that need for accommodation, for families, for female applicants, and that was the basis upon which that uh, that the changes were made in both situations. That stretches credibility, it, though. Like, I mean, had there, had there not been protests, you probably would have you you would have gone ahead and, and accommodated single men, wouldn't you? In um, December of uh, of of last year, we were getting on average maybe three hundred families per month. In January, we got seven hundred and fifty families, uh, seven hundred and fifty people in in the family category. So that's a more than doubling in a month. Our projections in terms of where we were going to designate uh, accommodation was based on 300 and then we had 750. That means we had to make changes. We have to have that freedom to make operational changes to meet the needs of the vulnerable people that we have to accommodate. And it was on that basis that the na- that, that changes were made in Ballinrobe and Carlo. Perhaps finally on migration, um, it's two years since you had to you know respond to the, to the war in Ukraine. Um, and obviously that came at a at the same time, there's a huge upsurge in IP, uh, as you discussed. Why are we still in an emergency response? Because, as you say, there were two crises. Um, one of them in terms of Ukraine, the, um, the, the, the scale of it was, was huge in terms of having to accommodate, uh, ha- having to, to make provision for up to 100,000 people coming to the country uh, and accommodating 75,000 of them. Um, and as I said at the start when I was speaking to Hugh, there was the the team in our department who'd been focusing on international protection, who'd been focusing on the changes, the policy changes to be made to that uh, to, to to that system, all had to be shifted in terms of meeting the the immediate uh, the immediate needs of Ukrainians arriving in the country. Since then, we've brought people back into the the the, uh, the work to make those reforms to the international protection but system. But this has been a crisis place. since day one, why, and we're still in crisis mode. Like people, people will reasonably say, why are ministers still still saying we need to switch to a more medium term approach? I mean, you've been saying that for two years. Why haven't we switched to a medium term approach? What is lacking that has meant that we're stuck on this kind of hamster wheel of crisis? I I I, I think. We, as I say, we've been dealing with uh, a day-to-day numbers, a day-to-day level, and day-to-day changes in the uh, in, 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 in arrivals that have, I suppose, necessitated a very much focus on the on the immediate. 
over the last number of months, my department have been working on bring, putting in place those 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 plans for that longer term system. We've made the changes on the Ukrainian side. They were discussed over the last number of months. They're about to be implemented now. Now we're bringing forward uh, a, a new proposals in terms of the international protection side. I think it was right that we made the changes to, on the Ukrainian side first, as that was the, I suppose, the, 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 larger, uh, the, the, the larger crisis in terms of sheer capacity that we were dealing with. Now we're moving on to bringing forward those longer term plans on the I suppose what's underlying Jack's question, if I, if, if I may, Jack, is, is a suggestion, and I've seen this suggested in many places, that you haven't had the full support of government, or at least there hasn't been the whole of government response, which was really required for a, for a, a crisis of this magnitude. Well, I, I, that, that's that's put to me regularly, and and I I don't agree because I don't think we could have uh, made provision uh, for seventy five thousand Ukrainians in the country if we didn't have a whole of government response. Um, I think we, as I said uh, uh, earlier in the interview, it was right in terms of our accommodation approach to look at this separately to the ongoing work that we're doing in Housing for All. I think if people had felt, you know, that uh, Ukrainians were jumped to the top of the queue that in terms of social housing, that, that yeah. no one would have accepted that. Mm. Uh, whereas we didn't take that approach, we took it on approach in terms of a, of, of, of a, of a separate track and it allowed us to, to provide that that level of short-term accommodation for 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 tens of thousands of people, um, recognizing that it didn't work perfectly the whole time, but ultimately um, we provided a home, we provided shelter, we provided safety for tens of thousands of people over the last two years. And I think when we look back at our response, it's something that as a country we can be proud of. And, and as I always say. It, it couldn't. It, it wasn't government that did this. By and large, it was communities all over the country that enabled this approach to be taken. Okay, we're just going to take a very quick break, and then we'll be back after this. And you're very welcome back, Minister Radical Gorman and Jack Horgan Jones are still here with me. Um, Mike. Immigration is a subject that has come up on social media, I've noticed, in, in some of the advanced discussions around the referendums, which are due to take place on International Women's Day, um, March the 8th. One of 20 or 30 different subjects I've seen brought up. There's a very good chance that these referendums be blown off course by the, the various different opinions from across the political spectrum, many of them negative. We've seen, we've seen do you think? Um, well, look, any referendum uh, can have... Uh, issues unrelated to it brought into the campaign. And I think that is then the central uh, job of government, of those parties supporting it, of those organisations supporting it, to give clarity, to set out exactly what the referendum um, covers and, and, and what it doesn't cover. And obviously now this time around we'll have the Electoral Commission doing uh, fulfilling that role as well. But just in terms of uh, you know, the, the, the second point you made there, I think it is important to say there is support across the political spectrum for this referendum. Yesterday, both um, Sinn Féin and the Social Democrats announced their support. People before profit have announced they're their, their supporting uh, uh, two yes votes. Uh, uh, Labour Party haven't made that decision yet, but I think certainly indicating in the Dáil last week they, they were they were broadly supportive. We have Family Carers Ireland, we have the National Women's Council, we have, um, we have One Family Ireland. So those organisations who have been very much at the front line of dealing with the consequences of um, the, the, the current definition of the family in the constitution, the current lack of support for care. So I think there is a, a, a strong view that the changes that we are proposing in these referendums, they're changes that have been talked about for a very long time. They're changes that have been talked about for decades and we now have the opportunity to actually make those changes. But many of the organisations you mentioned there, while calling for a yes vote, have been critical of the government because the government did not accept the recommendations of the Citizens' Assembly on, the, on this subject. Why, why, why didn't the government accept those recommendations? Well, let, let's, let's, let's look at them. The, the, there were three referendums discussed originally. One was on Article 40.1, the Equality Guarantee. Um, the very clear view, the legal view that we received was that the proposed wording from the Joint Oireachtas Committee would actually weaken the existing equality guarantee and that's not something that anybody would want to see happen. In terms of the referendum on the family, 
uh, again, one of the proposals from the Joint Oireachtas Committee was to remove the special protection of marriage from our constitution. Now, the government's objective in going into this referendum is to broaden the definition of family in the constitution to the families we know uh, um, uh, um, one parent family cohabiting couple and their kids that aren't recognised in our constitution right now but we didn't want to take away anything from anyone so the recommendation coming from the Joint Oireachtas Committee would have actually removed that special position of marriage which I, I actually think would have been rejected if it had been put to a people in, the, in, in, in a referendum so I think notwithstanding the huge work that both the Citizens Assembly did and the Joint Oireachtas Committee did in terms of um, providing information, providing advice to government. Ultimately, government has to take a decision on the wording. It has to be one when we're dealing with constitutional wording that is based on on, on, on the best legal advice and, and on strong considerations of how the various p- provisions of the constitution interact with each other. And it's on that basis that the government made its call on the wording on the two referendums that we'll be putting forward I mean, on the in, re- in relation to the, uh, the, the definition of a family, there's a certain amount of hilarity and parliamentary reports about talk of truffles and polygamy. Truffles? 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 Uh, there was some, some, some debate over, over that, polygamy, polyamory. They're all distractions, I think, really, aren't there? But there are some they perhaps are. more valid criticisms. I, I, I'm sure you're always up at Cracker Dawn to read your Irish Times every, every morning, so you, you may or may not have seen Michael McDool's um, column on this subject mm-hmm. today. He, uh, he suggests, in light of a very interesting Supreme Court decision this week in relation to a claim um, from a non-married partner mm-hmm. to, a, to a widower's pension, and he was successful on that on the basis of his right to equality under the law, he suggests that it is unwise and may have unfortunate consequences to insert this new definition of family in the constitution and it would have been wiser to leave such definitions to the dot. Mm. Well, I'll come back to the Amara decision in a moment because I think it actually is really important in the context of this referendum. But fundamentally, in terms of a family, um, putting recognising non-marital families, recognising um, uh, a one-parent family, recognising cohabitees uh, and their kids in the constitution. It has a legal meaning, but it also has a meaning in terms of values as well. And I always speak, talk back to the, the marriage equality referendum in 2015, where I fought very hard to have the opportunity to have my relationship, my family recognised in, in the constitution as a constitutional family. It really meant something to me that in 2014, I never would have had the chance of being recognised as a family within the constitution. Maybe that's because I'm a law lecturer and I'm a bit of a nerd about those things. But it actually, you know, the constitution is the foundational document of our state uh, and being excluded from it meant something for me. We all know families right now, people we intrinsically see as a family or think as a family as our head, who our constitution, our fundamental document doesn't recognise as a family. And the O'Mara decision, a decision of the Supreme Court on Monday of this week, said very clearly that the constitutional definition of the family is the family based on marriage. And the Supreme Court said, we're not going to change that. We're not going to interpret the constitution to bring in other families. They said very clearly, that's a job for the people in a referendum. Um, And you could see, I suppose, maybe the the discomfort that members of the Supreme Court had with the fact that the only family the Constitution recognises is, 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 the, is the marital family. Uh, but they also said, we're not going to reinterpret it. It's a, it's, it. That's for the people. And the people have that opportunity now on the 8th of March to broaden the definition of the family so the family in our Constitution doesn't just protect marital families, it also protects families like uh, a one-parent family, um, you know, unmarried uh, a couple living with their kids, or indeed, I- I- if they don't have kids. I suppose the point is, and I'm not here to argue Senator McDill's case, I'm sure he can do so perfectly perfectly well himself, is that we are now leaving the, the detail of that definition in the hands of, of the court rather than of the legislature, and that that is both, I, I think he's suggesting, both undemocratic and may have unforeseen consequences. Well, I, I, we've already seen this week, I suppose, the, the, the deference that the court, uh, the I suppose the court doesn't um, take an aggressive role in terms of expanding definitions. And we've already seen that in terms of the approach the Supreme Court took to not expanding the definition of the family in the Constitution in their decision in O'Mara on, uh, on, 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 on Monday. But I think fundamentally, 
our constitution and particularly Article 41, the article on marriage, it does, it, it sets out kind of this, the, 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 the sorry, Article 41, the, the article on marriage and family. Mm. It sets out that idea of what a family is in the constitution, this idea of a, a fundamental unit of society, a moral institution. And again, we all see these families in our everyday lives. We know them. I don't know, some people in this room might be part of those, those, those families. But there is something intrinsically unfair that those families are forever excluded from recognition within our constitution, within the basic documentation of our, of our state. And again, I suppose it... it is only when you, uh, and I, I don't know if you heard the debate, particularly in the Shannad uh, over the last two days, where three senators, uh, all uh, in relationships, all mams, but not married to the father of their kids, spoke about what it meant to be um, a mam, what it meant to be in a family, as everyone would describe it, but for them to see no place for themselves in the constitution. So with all due respect to both your own personal experience, which, which you've described here, and I'm sure a lot of people can uh, kind of relate to that, and indeed your superior legal knowledge to, uh, to mine as well. So I'm on a, probably on a, on, a, on a sticky wicket here. One of the criticisms of both of these proposed amendments or, or replacements is that they're about what some people have described as the vibes part of the Constitution, that they're not really going to have any effect on the way Irish people lead their day-to-day -day lives or have their rights vindicated in the courts. That's particularly the case which has been made about the replacement of the description of a woman's role in the home by a new description of the importance of carers, that it has no legal teeth. And in fact, that's the criticism for many of the, of the, of the NGOs has been, has been that, that the state will only be required to strive whatever that means to, uh, to vindicate those rights of well, carers. Well, well, I make two, two points on that. First of all, the, the, the vibes element or the values element, as, as I describe it, of the constitution is really important. Um, the constitution is the fundamental document of the state uh, and right now it doesn't reflect the values of our country in terms of where it consigns large numbers of families who aren't marital families and particularly the role it suggests for, for, for women and for, and for mothers being, being and this idea of mother's duties within the home. Could have just so taken I, that out though. So I think that values element is Could important. Could have just removed it. And I'll come back to remove or, or replace in a moment. But it is also important that every change to the constitution has a legal meaning and particularly the change to Article 41.2, the new article that we're bringing in in terms of care that will have legal meaning. It is a clear statement. The state shall strive to support care within the family. That is a, um, that's justiciable. That's something that, uh, that uh, individuals will be able to cite in court cases going forward. There is no such obligation on the state in terms of supporting care right now. Um, that's going to be introduced and it's care in all its forms. It's, it's care that mams and dads provide to their children. It's care that adult children provide to their elderly parents. It's care that uh, provided to a family member with a disability. So whereas... But the, the obligation on the state is less onerous than the wording which was suggested from the Citizens' Assembly or the Oireachtas Committee. And it's not care in all its forms. It's care within families. It's care within families but all forms of care. So whereas the current article 41.2 is very much the care of mothers for a child, this, the care, uh, the, 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 the care obligation being proposed by the government in this referendum is the care of parents for children, but it's also the care of adult children for their parents. It's elder care, it's disability care, it's the whole range of care. It's not just uh, linked to, to the care of but parents it'd be hard for, for to, children. To, to put that, whether it's justiceable or not, into, into practice. As Hugh points out, strive is, 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 a, is a weak form of what was suggested. There's a very clear recognition that the state needs to do more to support care and care in all those forms. I've, I've been able to do some work in that, uh, some policy work in that in terms of better investment in, 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 in childcare, for, for, for example. But there is an absolute recognition that more needs to be done there. And where you put in a constitutional obligation on the state it does have ramifications. I've been in, in cabinet discussions, in budget negotiations, and where there are constitutional requirements, they, they have an impact. They have so an impact the, on, So did the woman on, in the on, home wording have an impact? On the decisions politicians make and mm. on the decisions civil service servants make. There's been a lot of debate about that in, in both the Dáil and Shannon over the last uh, couple of days. I can't see positive... Um, 
changes that the uh, existing language of 41.2 have made. I, I, I haven't seen anyone make a strong case that it's made anything, it made, made anything different. Child Benefit, child benefit was, was brought in subsequent. That wasn't brought in at the time of the Constitution. It was brought in about a decade later. It was a re- Again, it was only for married mothers. It wasn't for unmarried mothers. So again, it was very much uh, introduced, I think it was introduced as an anti-poverty measure towards the end of the, of the, of the Second World War. It certainly wasn't directly springing from the provision of uh, of Article forty one point two, and is, I think is it, is it your view that that other um, you know more anachronistic uh, measures did spring or at least had their roots in in the in the language that exists and exists existed and exists in the constitution now? So the marriage bar, for example, in the civil service. I mean, Mike McDougall has been very strong saying there's no direct relationship between the two. Um, do you agree with him, or do you think that you know there there is a relationship to some extent? I don't think you can tr- trace a direct relationship from forty one point two being there. Therefore, the marriage bar was introduced. But I think you can look at the decisions that were made by Irish government in the late 1930s, early 1940s, just after the constitution was introduced, where the um, ability of women to have a career outside, uh, to, to have a career, and particularly a career after marriage, were, was reduced. Uh, and also participate in society, so for example, decisions around their participation in juries. I mean, uh, Michael McDougall spoke about that in terms of the compromise that was reached, and that compromise was struck down subsequently in in a court case uh, on the quality law in 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 the late. So 1970s. rather than having a concrete impact, it is as you say, it was a, it was a statement of values. It was which, stat- which percolated through it, the it society. Was, it was to a some statement extent. of values, and it was a statement. Uh, I believe that con- that 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 lived in the same atmosphere of our treatment of women who had children outside of marriage during the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s that, you know, at the start of my term of office I was dealing in the context with of the, the response to the, the report on are mother you, and d- baby d- homes. Are you picking and choosing to an extent though? I mean, you're saying, you know, when it's a when it's a quote-unquote bad thing, like the marriage bar, it kind of has its philosophical roots in the Constitution. When it's a, when it's something that we think of more fondly, like the introduction of child benefit, it's totally separate and, you know, came 10 years afterwards and has nothing to do with it. Is there an element of picking and choosing there and attributing all bad things to to the to the the language in the constitution saying that all good things sprang totally separately from it? No, I don't think so. Um but I'd also say that I, I recognise that, and, and it was it was actually a really interesting discussion in the Dáil and Shannon, particularly in the Shannon over the, the the roots of it in in the nineteen thirties and nineteen forties. I recognise all that discussion is contested, um, and the reason we're proposing the deletion of this this uh, this provision isn't because of what happened in the nineteen thirties and forties. The reason is in. 2024, we don't believe it matches our values to describe as mothers having duties in the home. And I think, and even even in the Shannon, and there was quite robust debate in the Shannon yesterday, I don't think anyone felt, yeah, I'm 100% happy that the Irish Constitution 2024 talks about mothers' duties in the home. So we're looking to um, remove that provision and coming back to your point, Hugh, earlier about remove and replace, there has been a big debate about that and there have been proposals for 30 years to remove Article uh, 42, 41.2. Um, there was a very concrete proposal in 2018, I think um, Charlie Flanagan, when he was minister, brought forward for a, a plain delete. But there was also a sense that speaking to the fact that we do need to do more to support care and care in all its forms in, in, in society, to recognise its importance and to support it, that actually the constitution should be amended to reflect that. And we've done that and we've done it, well, we, we hope to do it by, because if we have a yes vote, there will be a brand new article, Article 42B in our constitution, an article of care that recognises care, but most importantly, places that obligation on the state. We should note, by the way, the, the slight absurdity of the fact that we're three men sitting around a table discussing the role of women in the home, but uh, we'll move, we move along swiftly from that. Um, looking at all these subjects uh, and and your, your portfolio, you seem to have ended up as Minister for Culture Wars. Do you feel that? I, I, I don't, and, and I, don't, uh, I don't kind of get into that language because I, I've certainly seen over in the UK... Um, how that discourse has become so uh, so toxic that it really isn't advancing anyone's position right now. I'm the Minister for Equality. 
uh, and it's something I feel very passionately about. I, I, I believe we can deliver equality without taking away from the rights of, uh, of others. Um, I think we've, we have made significant changes as a, as a country, um, but I, I think there's, there, there, there's more to do. And I'm happy to be involved in debates and, and making significant changes like to our constitution that I do believe advance equality for everybody and particularly on the area of care because, and, and that's, Fundamentally, my belief, care is everybody's job uh, and it's, it's the job of mams and dads, it's the job of sons and daughters um, and we need, uh, but I also believe that the state has to help people more um, and that's my work in terms of uh, supporting childcare and in, in terms of broadening leaves for, for, for new uh, mams and dads is all about the state doing more to support care. Just in, in terms of the culture war thing, I know that it's something that you kind of instinctively reject, but do you see it? becoming part of Irish politics, perhaps more than was the case at the start of this government? I see people trying to bring it in. um, And, uh, you know, uh, um, again, looking at some of the contributions in in the Shannon yesterday, some of the contributions I I face on the Dáil on a regular basis, you see people trying to um, evoke uh, the culture wars um, but I think that's that's primarily for 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 political reasons and to try and draw a, a level of support around them. Um, I, as I say, I'm interested in advancing equality, um, but I don't ever want to portray that in the sense of uh, to give. Um, better rights, better protections to some groups. We need to take away stuff from others. I've never portrayed it as that because I don't see it like that. There's no such thing as conflicting rights. Of course, there are there there are conflicting rights, but I think in terms of a philosophical point of view that you are looking to um, level down, uh, I certainly don't don't take that approach. The clock is ticking on this government. At best, a year left. Do you have a list of a number of things which you'd really like to see get through get get them through the gate before the end? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to, obviously, um, we've got the referendum bills through the houses now. I want to see a a, a successful yes, yes vote on the 8th of March, and I'll be absolutely focused on that uh, and bringing forward these proposals in terms of a long-term provision of state-owned accommodation for international protection um, applicants. I have um, a child care amendment bill looking to... um, make significant changes to the provision uh, for children when they're taken into the care of the state. That's something that's been sitting around for about 10 years. I'd really, really like to get that over the line. And then there's some changes to equality legislation, particularly how equality legislation operates, um, that I'd also be be, be eager to to deliver on the legislative side. Uh, And if I'm still in office uh, for Budget 25, which hopefully uh, I I will be, I'd certainly be very much looking, we, myself and Minister Ablish, put Minister Rabbit published a disability action plan uh, a number of weeks ago and I'd be looking to, to, to provide funding so we can have more personal assistance hours so we can increase the amount of respite available uh, to, to children and, and, and to adults with a disability. So from, a, I suppose, a, a budgetary, from a financial focus, that's what I'd be looking at in Budget 2025. Um, in 2020, in the Irish Times exit poll, uh, the Greens got... Uh, sorry, I lost it. The Greens got 7.9% nationally, 12.9% in Dublin. Uh, you were elected on 11.2% of first preference vote. You're currently polling, uh, I think it's about 5%, 5% in Dublin, uh, yeah, and 3% nationally. On those numbers, you're looking at a serious blow to your numbers of TDs. you accept that? If those numbers um, were delivered on election day, obviously, yeah, you'd lose seats. Um I'm out, I go I go canvassing a lot. Uh, it's how I got elected originally. I've I've been running in in elections since uh, since 2014. So so t- since 20 uh, 2004. So 20 years. Um, the response I'm getting on the doors is very positive. Um, positive uh, for I suppose the work I'm doing within my own department and positive for the work the Green Party are doing within. But the that context must be a concern. I mean, government. those numbers are those numbers are pretty pretty deeply entrenched at this stage. They uh, went down after you went into government. They stayed down. There's nothing to suggest it's going to change. Of, of course, um, of course, consistent polling is, is something we take account of. But I also don't believe in panicking on the basis of uh, of, uh, of, of, of bad opinion poll numbers. Ultimately, when we got the mandate from our members to go into government, we said we have a job to do. We got we deliver we negotiated an extremely strong 
programme for government from the Green, point, Green Party point of view. We have implemented the vast majority of the key Green goals within that. Be outside of that, I think this government has managed um, a, a, a global pandemic, a response to a war, um, a cost of living crisis, and it's done that in a way that's provided stability in this country, stability that we don't see in a lot of European countries, stability that we don't see in our, our most immediate neighbour. And I do think that when people look at the what this government has done, and compare that with the other offerings in, in, in election time, they'll see the key role that the Green Party played in terms of advancing environmental climate policies, advancing policies that actually benefited people in terms of what I've done in cutting the cost of childcare, in terms of what Eamon's done in cost, uh, cutting the cost of public transport and putting investment into, uh, putting investment into, into renewables and into allowing people, you know, better, better insulate, better, better um, power do, their homes. Do you think homes. you could repeat that with, uh, with Sinn Féin as a partner in government? We've always been very clear that um, following the election, we're open to negotiations with all parties. Uh, we don't rule anybody out. And that's, that's always been a position that the Green Party has taken. Um, it would uh, involve the need to negotiate a programme for government that had very clear Green Party um, proposals contained within it, but also the ability to deliver that. And I think this is what really distinguishes this government from the previous time we were in government, because we actually have a mechanism to work with the two other parties to ensure delivery where issues come up and issues come up all the time but we find ways to get through and resolve those particular political final, differences. Final question. Um, I put you I just waving frantically yeah. in the background, so this is definitely the final question. I, I, I don't think he's going anywhere anytime soon, but he's been there since May of 2011. Eamon Ryan, Green Party leadership. When the time comes for a new leader of the Green Party, would you be interested? Well, I, I don't think Eamon's going anywhere anytime soon. Take that as right, um, when it does come. Look, I, I've never been focused on the leadership of the party because the Greens are, are different to other parties. Leadership is much more diffuse within the Greens. It's but, not and like, yet you have a leader. Um, and yet we have a leader. I was the chairperson of the party for eight years. I stepped back from that role in 2019 because I thought it was important. Other people took up the role as well. So look, when the time comes, uh, I've no doubt... It will depend on, you know, are we in government, are we in opposition? It will depend on, am I still a member of, of the Oireachtas? And obviously that's a key element as well. So look, all those things will be considered at the time. But as we've discussed, I have a very big agenda in my department right now, and that's my focus. So sorry, do you want to be in the conversation when we all sit around this table talking about the next Green Party leader, or are you ruling yourself out now? You're not particularly interested. I Look, I, I presume by being a minister, um, I'll be part of that conversation. But I'm not looking to prompt that conversation. I, I've, I've, I've a lot of much more immediate things on my plate. And our listeners can interpret that as they see fit. But we will leave it there. Roderick O'Gorman, thanks very much indeed for coming in. Thanks you. Thanks, Jack. And that's it for today. Thanks to Jack for joining us too. Thanks to our producer, Declan Condon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We'll be back with you very soon with our Wrap of the Week on Friday. Until then, thank you very much for listening.